I said that I would introduce Jocelyn White uh, with IJM, with International Justice Missions to you, and we are privileged to have her here with us to bring this morning's message. So Jocelyn, why don't you come on up? Jocelyn lives in Southern California. Yeah, welcome. She got to meet last night at, at Marriott in San Francisco. The International Justice Mission had uh, the fundraiser, a big, beautiful banquet. What, seven or eight hundred people in there? Uh, and so she got to. We had two tables. Uh, we we made two tables available and filled two tables with folks from the church. And so some of our folks got to meet Jocelyn last night and be at that banquet. And I went and said, "Hey, she's preaching tomorrow. You're you're in for a treat." And we are. Uh, Jocelyn has become a favorite of ours, someone that we love. Tried to get her, had to book you a year in advance to be able to get you for this date. You're really popular. Aww. Yeah, so, but we get the treat today of having Jocelyn minister to us. And we're staying with our series on hope and the hope quotient. Some of our, some of our small groups are roughly paralleling. They're, they're reading through the book, and our sermon series is roughly paralleling the themes uh, in that book. And today the idea of how you, how you maintain hope or build hope and how it relates to busyness and, mm -hmm. and dealing with all of that and the great tasks that are before us. So, Jocelyn, bring the word of God to us. But let me, let me pray uh, before you launch into this. Okay. First of all, we pray with appreciation for the fact that you, in your providence, God, decided that Marin Covenant needed to hear what your servant has to bring today. And we recognize that and are grateful for it. We ask Holy Spirit that you would make us learners right now. That your daughter, the prophet, would be received with warmth and open arms and open hearts and that we would remember that we are hearing from you. So guard her words and release her, Lord, to be our teacher and our encourager today. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning. Like Pastor Art mentioned, I met a number of you last night, and you promised when I'd ask you'd say amen. So if you were there last night, can I get an amen? amen. Thank you. <laughs> and for the rest of you, congratulations on making it to church on Football Sunday. A lot of good games going on today, so wonderful to see such a full house today. And it's so wonderful to be back. I was here last May, and it was the very last day before all of you were going to transfer over to the hotel for a few months. So not an easy task, and I was really impressed that all of you decided to do it together. And like we learned last week from Dieter, we can't go through difficult things alone. And I was really moved by Dieter's interview last week. In particular, a couple of things stuck in my heart and my mind that a stroke that lasted just a few seconds moved him from worship leader to janitor, but also performer to humble servant. And I think we often fall into trying to perform and trying to perform for God. And so what a great reminder that we can move our focus back to humble service and truly embrace the abundant life that God has for us all. You're in the midst of the series on hope, and many of you are reading through the Hope Quotient by Ray Johnston. So as a reminder, I'm going to read the hope definition that you've been going through the past few weeks. Hope is a life lived in increasingly confident expectation that God's promises are true and that he will act in our lives and in our world. 
And so for those of you reading the Hope Quotient, this week's chapter was about replacing burnout with balance. So Pastor Art sent me the chapter, and I was reminded of when my husband and I were both on the verge of burnout a few years ago. I don't know about you, but when I'm starting to feel stress, I start to lose my sense of humor. And so for those of us who, for those of you who may know me, I love, love, love to laugh. So when I can't laugh about anything, it's a good indicator that I'm on the verge of burnout. My husband and I heard a compelling message by a pastor and author, Wayne Cardero, called Leading on Empty. And we immediately began to try to make a habit out of leading out of rest. So in other words, when we're looking at our calendar, our year, and our quarter, we try to put in our rest points first, and then all of the other events that come at us. And also, early on in our marriage, we tried to go away for honeymoons about every six weeks and just go away and unplug from the world. However, in the last four years, we had a son. I started a new job that has us traveling. And we started our own nonprofit, Slavery No More, that works with government authorities, law enforcement, and nonprofits within Los Angeles County where we work to address the issue of, of trafficking. So we are married, have a lot, have a toddler with lots of playdates and birthday parties. We have full-time jobs, one which requires travels. We manage a nonprofit. We have friends that, like we, that we like to hang out with. So we have plenty to burn out from. In fact, a couple of years ago, we found ourselves experiencing symptoms of vicarious trauma. We were both we both had a cloud of just great anxiety and fear, and we had it kind of on our own, and we isolated ourselves from one another when we felt those symptoms come about. We were afraid of being killed, afraid of being chased and murdered, had anxiety about just dropping dead. It was a horrible, dark period of time, and what we realized is we were having symptoms of vicarious trauma. So we've endeavored to do a few things to avoid burnout because we're constantly drawing near to very, very difficult things, following cases of great violence in our own community and around the world. So here are just three things that we've tried to implement. Since it's no longer practical for us to go away on honeymoons, we play hooky. So we take once every six weeks or so, we drop our son off at school, and then we just play hooky and unplug. Sometimes that means going on a great adventure, sometimes that means going to see a movie, and sometimes it means taking a nap for the glory of God. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> now, there's another thing that we've tried to do, and, and it's to let one another know when we're feeling what I call the hauntings of the undone. We're both type A personalities and have our checklists. Mine are on my computer, his are on a thousand post-its. But we still have these checklists that come at us and I feel like this haunting of the undone. So we have to decisively spend time with God alone, unplug, and in our minds and our hearts pray that God would give us the ability to literally hand over all that is undone into the mighty hand of God. And lastly, we're endeavoring to try to eat healthier and exercise even on the road. I read once, if you fail to plan, then you plan to fail. So when we think about what sustains us, hope grows when we plan to rest. What would it be like if you led out of rest? 
One of my colleagues shared a Dallas Willard quote with me last month. Grace is not opposed to effort, which is action, but to earning, which is attitude. Grace is not opposed to effort, which is action, but to earning, which is attitude. Are we working so hard to earn something from God? His approval, his love, his validation, or even our worth. A scripture that often ministers to me is Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I think like many of us in this room, when we think about changing our community and our world for Christ, it seems exciting, adventurous, and perhaps deeply rewarding. But it's a work that requires a great dependence on God, a ruthless trust in his leading, and let's admit it, a lot of work. So to be completely honest, I struggle with finding and planning to rest, even though we've tried to do that. It's still a struggle, and it's a struggle for me to depend on God versus my own abilities, especially when all that he's asking does not make any sense. In my work with IJM, I constantly feel this deep sense of urgency because I am fully committed to seeing our clients rescued and restored. And that includes mobilizing the church to seek justice locally and globally. So why is it so hard to rest? To explain, IJM is a global ministry that protects the poor from everyday violence. So my colleagues of investigators, social workers, lawyers, social work, uh, excuse me, community activists and other professionals, we work hard and are committed to use our skills and our time to protect the poor from violence. Our vision is to rescue thousands, protect millions, and prove that justice for the poor is possible. And working alongside my colleagues, I have learned a lot about what it looks like to depend on God when things look impossible. To trust God in the most fearful situations. But most importantly, I've learned that hope sustains us. Yet within the fabric of IJAM's culture of high achievers, high capacity workers, and hundreds of experts, we are asked to leave our work in whatever state it is once a quarter to go away on a staff retreat. I liken it to when I'm going about 80 miles an hour and all of a sudden I have to slam on my brakes. I used to work at a church, and when we went to retreats, I worked. I managed the schedule, the speakers, accommodations, the food, the fun, and the awkward team-building activities. <laughs> when I thought about retreats, I kind of started to twitch a little bit. But what I've come to experience at IJM is that rest and retreat can actually go together. But what about all the work? What keeps the hauntings of the undone from chasing us as we're trying to pursue rest? Hope grows when we plan to rest, but hope also grows when we focus on what is possible with God. So one of the scriptures I often turn to is Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine. According to his power that is work within us, to him be the glory to the church and to Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So I've had a chance to meet some of our clients and also spend meaningful time with my colleagues. And our director of security is a retired colonel from the Army. 
and he oversaw the training of our U.S. Special Forces anti-terrorism units. And he told me that we at IJM put our investigators in more danger and more often than he did with his anti-terrorism units. And during our initial interviews for lawyers that would carry out our child sexual assault cases in Guatemala, only one lawyer said that she was willing to die for our casework. And she has been a key leader in our efforts in Guatemala and is now leading our efforts in the Dominican Republic as we're seeking to bring justice and rescue to young victims of sex trafficking. If you were at the benefit last night, this week we celebrated our very first rescue operation. When IGM began rescuing girls from sex trafficking in Cebu, we were able to find a young girl to rate for profit just within 15 minutes. This was a very hopeless and evil situation, but IJM felt that God was inviting us into that place. He invited us into entering this tragic world of sex trafficking where we're led through the trenches to depend on God, to trust in him through the impossible. We had to courageously extend love. IJM received a grant from the Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation to do a justice system reform project, which we entitled Project Lantern. We signed a memo of understanding with the Filipino National Police, and together we trained law enforcement and police officers on how to investigate and conduct rescue operations. We trained social workers on how to interview young victims of sexual trauma. We trained judges and prosecutors on their own laws and how to enforce them. And our hope was to reduce the availability of minors for sex by 20% in a period of four years. So at our four-year mark, we invited a third party to assess our work, and they discovered that we were not able to decrease the number of minors available for sex by 20%. It was actually reduced by 79%. There is an estimated 30 million slaves in our world today, still more than any time in history. And in India, it's estimated to enslave more than half of them. So what can provide us hope? Well, in 2011, we were able to conduct our largest rescue operation, and together with Indian police, we brought freedom to 514 slaves, including 23 children, the youngest eight years old. In Bolivia, where we also pursue child sexual assault cases, there's something called a tribunal. And in order for a trial to move forward, two judges and three citizens need to appear. However, there is no requirement by the government to actually notify the citizens to actually appear. So if you can imagine, it can take years and years for trials to move forward. And in our Uganda office, our lawyers and clients have to often wait for a handwritten piece of paper for two to three hours to have a list of trials that are being heard that day. It takes years and years to really just be patient and waiting for, for what might be a mere second of, oh, our trials being heard today and trying to rally everyone that has to be there. In Guatemala, one of the most violent countries in the world, child sexual assault is rampant. And it is rampant because it's simply done with complete impunity. Very little is being done to those who violently and sexually assault young children and are free to roam the country and repeatedly victimize young children. 
When we first arrived in Guatemala, 95% of all child sexual assault cases, that's hundreds and thousands of reported cases, were not even ending in a verdict. 95%. Since IJM opened our office, we have been able to train judges and social workers on best practices for interviewing young victims. We worked with local governments to create the Camera Hacels, where young victims can be interviewed by a child psychologist in the safety of a room. And the judges are watching through a one-glass mirror. And it only requires a victim to have to testify once. We have seen convictions for child sexual assault crimes increase by 1,000%. We have so much to be thankful and excited for at IJM, but I think success in spite of the journey is cause for more celebration. See, oftentimes the work can be very, very hard, very slow, and sometimes even a bit boring. Many of our cases take three to four years to actually reach a conviction. That's years of slowly walking our clients through that healing process, encouraging them to try to remain hopeful and to persevere through the many frustrations. Justice work is deeply meaningful, but it's often not that glamorous. Justice work is tedious that requires remarkable perseverance with the mundane tasks. It requires, first and foremost, those who have learned to serve. It means learning to love when it's not easy. Because if we are not able to radically serve the people around us, we will not have the character to persevere in places of great darkness. To give you an example, last year we secured a landmark conviction of a slave owner. What was involved in securing this conviction? Well, it took more than 50 appearances in court. Now, to help you understand, this means, well, picture 50 visits to the DMV on its worst day. <laughs> now, picture going to that DMV in Bakersfield, because it's about four hours away. Now, picture that more than 50% of the time, the trip to the courthouse is a complete waste of time because the case was transferred without notice, because the judge didn't show up, or for no reason at all. So you make 50 visits to the DMV in Bakersfield, and you spend how many hours at the DMV waiting for nothing, or perhaps something to happen? To be precise, our staff in the field spent 6,100 hours at the courthouse to secure justice. 6,100 hours at the courthouse, that's a thousand more times than four years of high school. What motivates my colleagues to persevere when they consider what God has already done? We can be assured of what is possible with God, and then we can have hope. Our founder, Gary Haugen, often says that God does miraculously transforming things through miraculously transformed people. So is ending slavery in our lifetime possible? If we can get 10% of our country to care about justice, do you realize that we would have an advocate for every slave in the world, 30 million? And what if each advocate called their member of, of Congress? Little question that 30 million calls would change the political landscape in regards to slavery. And what if they each gave $10 a year 
we would have 10 organizations the size of IJM around the world. If we can help awaken one in every 10 people to the cause of justice, we can end slavery in our lifetime. Hope grows when we plan to rest, and hope grows when we focus on what is possible with God, and hope grows when we pray. Why do we pray? Do we pray out of discipline or out of desperation? Someone who prayed fervently was Nehemiah. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of man. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, a place of honor and high status. And he's part of King Artaxerxes' intimate group of servants. But Nehemiah is completely undone. See, Jerusalem, the holy city, the home of Yahweh's temple, is bereft of its wall, its economy. The wall is down. It's laid waste. It is reduced to rubble. And in an ancient world, there is no greater disgrace to a city if it's without, than when it's without its wall. He asked God for favor with the king, a man of great power, and he could have chosen to do nothing about the plight of the Jews. Yet he chose for it to be his mission to care for those who are far away from him and are living under great oppression. He dared to call upon God, the God he knows, he loves, and he longs to serve, the God who he's praying to out of desperation to complete his mission, rebuild the wall. So throughout this mission of rebuilding the wall, he was confronted by a variety of things that would discourage most people. In chapter 4, verse 1, we meet governor named Sanballat. The Bible says, when Sanballat, a governor for the Chans-Euphrates, heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they even finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? In verse 3, Tobiah doubts their ability and says that if a fox climbed up on their wall, he would break down their wall of stones. Now, I'm sure this was far from encouraging to Nehemiah and other builders. And why? Because the only rocks available for mining near Jerusalem were sandstone. When sandstone is burned with fire, as we have been done in the, in the siege of Jerusalem, it loses its structural integrity. When Sanballat is saying, what he's saying is true. The rocks are already reduced to rubble. The ones that are big enough are burned with fire, so they fall apart when you touch them. And they have no mining operations to get new rocks. Good luck with that, Nehemiah. It won't work. You can't build your wall. 
So how did Nehemiah respond? Well, it turns out that he really didn't say too much. And though he realizes that Sambalat is saying is probably true, he doesn't lose sight of his mission. Mission, rebuild the wall. And though these are the only rocks we have, and though we don't have qualified builders, the work must begin to rebuild the wall. So the workers prayed. Did they pray out of discipline or desperation? They even took on more roles that required even more faith. Verse 9 says, But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. At IJM, we believe that the hard work of justice begins with the hard work of prayer. Every day, my colleagues and I are asked to spend 30 minutes of stillness each day and then intentionally stop working for another 30 minutes so we can corporately come together and pray. And then we're asked to go away for our staff quarterly treats. And on top of that, we're asked to pause work for a few days in April so that we can gather with all of our constituents and do the hard work of prayer at our global prayer gathering. Maybe your prayers will affect you, or maybe your prayers will affect those who are trying to seek justice. But rest assured, your prayers, they will certainly most affect our clients. A couple years ago at our global prayer gathering, we heard of Michael, a grandfather who had been wrongfully convicted of murder and sentenced to hanging. We prayed at the global prayer gathering that God would somehow provide a way for Michael to regain his freedom. Remember, he was already sentenced to hanging, convicted of murder. Did we pray out of discipline or out of desperation? Six weeks after the global prayer gathering, a new constitution was passed for bail, and Michael walked out free. And a year later, Michael's name was cleared right around Christmas time. And here he is at our global prayer gathering, sharing his story and praying with us for those who are waiting for freedom. And just two weeks before we mobilized Jyoti's rescue operation, someone in our brothel asked her, have you ever tried praying to this Jesus God that I've heard of? So she started saying the name of Jesus just a couple of days. Oh, excuse me, just a couple times a day. And just simply said Jesus. And little did she know that two weeks after she started saying the name of Jesus, IJM, along with local police, set Jyoti free. Hope grows when we rest. Hope grows when we remember and focus on what is possible with God. But hope grows when we pray. Amen? Amen. So, will you commit to joining all of us at IJM, as well as the thousands around the globe who are interceding in places of desperation, to commit to the hard work of justice through the hard work of prayer. In your bulletins, you have a small little prayer card. And here is just my simple invitation to you. On the back, all you have to do is write your name and your email address and submit it to the IJM table to myself or my colleague Isabel, who actually is a member of this church. 
And we will so welcome your name and your information because in just a few weeks, you will begin to receive our confidential prayer requests. And you will join with us every single day as we corporately meet to pray for our needs. When we consider God's invitation to seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow, we can be assured that God calls us to this mission, but he's with us in the mission and transforms us to be more like him through the mission. So let's rescue thousands, protect millions, and prove that justice for the poor is possible. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the gracious gift of hope that you can give us. That hope is something that you want to freely give us. That we can courageously step into places of rest because you will grant us hope. And when we look to see what you have done, it gives us hope. And then, Lord, when we pray out of desperation, you promise hope. So, Lord, we unleash hope to bring about freedom to the 30 million slaves in our world today. And will you move us to pray? Amen. So some are asking the question, wait a minute, we thought, we thought that being a Christian uh, was about you know, praying a prayer to receive Jesus and being forgiven, and the old language was receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So it was a one-on-one -on -one thing between God and me. Why this emphasis on oppression and justice? And isn't that more social action? The fact is that for the most, well, to a large degree, the evangelical movement has reduced Christianity a little too far. It's been too much of a cook-down to where all it was about was Jesus and me, and as long as we're okay, everything's okay. But a full reading of Scripture recognizes that Christianity is a verb. Christian is a verb. Church is a verb. That God asks us, yes, indeed, make no mistake about it, we don't mean to minimize, yes, indeed, Christianity and becoming a Christian is about new life in Jesus, source of life. Jesus, I, I need you. Forgive me for my sins. Become my leader. Become my rescuer. My life is going to be patterned after you. From now on, I'm following you individually. But it's not only about source of life, this new life in Christ. Christianity is also about way of life. The things we tolerate and don't tolerate. The things we dream of actually becoming reality. We live by this little guideline, because Jesus talked about the way the world was going to be one day when all that is broken is made whole again. It was really hope-giving and inspiring to hear him talk about that. And here's the guideline we try to live by as holistic Christians. So without minimizing for one second the idea of a personal relationship with God and for Jesus Christ and all that for us on the cross and with the resurrection, it would be terrible to minimize that. We're saying yes and. To the degree, and here's that little saying, to the degree we can be what we will be, 
we should be. So the Christian church as a verb, with full understanding and appreciation for and reconciliation of every human being, every individual to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, which we do not minimize. The Christian church looks and says, what will it be one day? When, when parents' daughters are no longer taken off the street and sold into slavery, and as Jocelyn so, so graphically but accurately put it, raped for profit, when that doesn't happen anymore, when that can't happen anymore, what will it be that day when Jesus is fully in control and the scars of men and women's hearts are erased and people are treated with kindness and love and justice and mercy? What will that be? And to the degree we can discern that and then experience that and work for that today, the church should rise up and insist on that and invest herself in that. So. This is not anti-evangelical. This is not sort of social action Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. We do not stand by and watch things done to people with less power that we would never tolerate being done to our own children and ourselves. We just do not do that. Why? Because I can't imagine God doing that. In fact, this is sermon number two, I guess, I'm sorry. <laughs> he didn't do it. He looked at his children, all of humanity that he created, and he said, I can't stand the fact that they have no options except to sink in their own choices. And I'm going to take initiative. And my son Jesus, my own son, is going to go and make it possible for what will be one day to be experienced by them today. To the degree we can be, what we will be, we should be. And as I read scripture, I don't see it teaching us about a future work. Jesus is in control. Where daughters and sons are enslaved, where the weak and powerless are taken advantage of by the powerful, I just don't see it. And so the church, the people of Christ, will not tolerate it. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't given your heart to Jesus, that's the language, by all means do that. Be reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ with a simple prayer that says, sincerely, Jesus, I need you, and I'm going to follow you from now on. Forgive me and include me in that community called Christians. But also, consider investing yourself in what God invites us to be a part of to experience today and work today for what will be true when he's fully in play, fully in power, so that what will be true is now true. That's why we talk about issues of justice and oppression and fairness and the right use of power. Let's pray, and then I'll dismiss you. Oh God, thank you for servants like Jocelyn, Isabel, who remind us of everything that's on your heart. That your heart breaks when the poor experience violence and oppression and unfairness, things that are awful, beyond comprehension for us. 
And we're grateful, although uncomfortably so, for the reminder that those prophets bring to the church. That for us to sit back and watch that, not trying to do anything to address it, is virtually the same as us participating in it. So forgive us, but move beyond that, Lord. By your Holy Spirit, empower us with a great boldness so that we redirect our gifts, our influence, our wealth to put our foots down where you have put your holy foot down. Say, no more. Not on our watch. Make Christian a verb again, we pray, of Christ. Amen.